0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at beatitudeschurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. For Arizonans, the Wild West is a moniker that we can't seem to shake. nearly two centuries after the legendary Buffalo Bill Cody coined it through his tales of conquest and survival among diverse cultures. For the early church, the years following Jesus' death most likely were just as unorganized and frontier-like. Geography and diverse accounts seemed to separate his followers, especially when you look at the variations between the four Gospels, Right? Did Christianity, in fact, trace a line of purity back to Jesus that propelled forward, creating the narratives and the orthodoxy or right beliefs that we have today? Or did it develop later out of the diversity of those first-century Christians? And why does it matter? Today's scripture is from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13 a church divided over leaders. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this excuse me. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul?
1: Yesterday, they ran the Preakness. Now, if you're not sure what that is, that is one of the top three races that they do with horses. I am very conflicted when it comes to continuing to watch horse racing. On the one side, I love the beauty and the majesty of these horses. Their their achievements, the way that they're muscular built, the way they run, the passion that you can see in these horses, uh, to me, it looks as if they were just literally, and they are, bred to run. But on the other side, I read about all the different things that are happening around their bloodlines and the way that these horses are trained and the use of external uh, sources to enable them to become that much more effective in running a race. So I have this tension inside of me. Should I watch it? Should I not watch it? Should I support it? Should I not support it? But one of the things that I find fascinating about horse racing is the amount of money that goes into this endeavor and the chances that you take in going into horse racing, no matter what level. And the biggest risk that I think you take at that first moment is when it comes to purchasing a horse. Individuals will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, some even millions of dollars, just for a baby colt with the hope that the bloodline that they have meticulously researched will prove to be accurate, and that this horse that they're investing this money in will grow up to be able to bring back some of that earnings, either through race wins or through breeding further down the line. It's a big risk. And that's why there's a large amount of money into studying the bloodline of these horses. To be able to trace them back and make sure that when the individuals say, this horse is from these, it was sired by these horses, that you would be able to say, okay, it's worth the risk. But you don't have to talk about horses when it comes to bloodlines, just horses. Horses. It's amazing how much money we spend every year on purchasing dogs, cats, our pets. There are, are plenty of dogs in shelters, plenty of them, both pedigree dogs as well as mutts that need homes but we bypass those in order to find a pedigree pet, one that we think will be somehow better because we can trace its line back. Perhaps in that line, you might actually be able to identify a champion, both in show as well as in talent. And somehow we think that that better line will create a better pet for us. And so we were willing to spend thousands of dollars for this pet. What I find fascinating is that this is not only true when it comes to animals that we purchase, but it's also in our possessions. The other day I was flipping through YouTube and I saw the highest, the top 10 highest valued cars that you can purchase. It's amazing how much money people pay just for a vehicle. But you wanna make sure that the vehicle you are getting is the vehicle that they say you are getting. So some of these vehicles will actually have stamped somewhere on the vehicle a number identifying that as being perhaps one of only 10 vehicles that were ever produced. Somehow that ability to be able to say, I've got one out of 10 increases the value of that car. So this idea of, of being able to trace the origin of something becomes a part of what we value, what we're willing to pay for something doesn't matter its use it's how well much money we're willing to pay for this item that many individuals use as collections as investments what i find intriguing is that we also do this with ideas in particular with christian ideas We like the idea when it comes to Christianity to be able to show that as followers of Jesus, what we believe can be traced all the way back to Jesus himself. That there's this pure line that goes all the way back. And this is the prevalent view within Christianity. The prevalent view is that Jesus talked with his disciples— that his disciples had this information and that through the holy spirit they were able to accurately transmit it to the next generation and then from that generation it began eventually to be written down and then once it was written down the holy spirit was also involved in that to keep the purities still in existence so that you and i today are able to say that what we believe can be traced all the way back to Jesus. Well, that view is very reassuring. It gives us a great deal of comfort to know that what we believe was actually being taught by Jesus. Unfortunately, Decades ago, that bubble was burst for me. I believed that. That was the way I was raised. That's what I was taught. And then I made the mistake of continuing to read and study for myself. And as I did so, I realized that view, this pure line that you can take all the way back to Jesus, isn't probably accurate. More than likely, there was a great deal of diversity that followed after Jesus' death. Let me see if I can explain it to you. We believe that Jesus traveled in a wide variety of areas. He traveled in Judea, tra- in the south. He traveled up north to Samaria. He even went across the Jordan in what is called Transjordan. He crossed over. He taught there. So he taught in a wide variety of different areas. And what he did there was probably different to each group. For example, more than likely, he didn't say the same thing over and over, one location. You know, like, he didn't have a go-to. That he taught this, and then taught the same thing over here, taught the same thing back here. But instead, he probably spoke according to the needs of those that he was with. What he did was different from each one. So each of these places, these regions where he existed and, and taught... And, and did different deeds, each of them was different. And so each group had different perceptions of who Jesus was. They understood Jesus differently. What he said, they, what it meant, they took differently. Why what he said was important was different for them. And once he died, they probably took that and they began to develop those ideas. As time went on and they passed the teachings to the next generation, there was a little bit of growth in their understanding of what Jesus actually said. So what you end up having is throughout this whole Palestinian regions is different pockets of what people believed about Jesus, what he said, what he did. In fact, what is fascinating is they actually went and did a study, and they took the four Gospels. Sorry, four Gospels. And of those four Gospels, they took a map, and they placed on this map where all these different things occurred. And what they discovered is that Mark, The Gospel of Mark, where those things occurred that he describes, all happened in one particular region. The Gospel of John, a different region. And so there's evidence that supports this idea that there were diverse views of Jesus. Because when you read the four Gospels, you get four different views. Four different ideas of what Jesus was about. This became really prevalent during the time of Paul. Now again, understand, Paul, Paul probably didn't write to about 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death. And Paul talks about some of the controversies that he had to face. The text that Janelle read for us is one example. Another example is the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. Paul had a problem. The church that he had started in Galatia was beginning to be inundated with different pockets and ideas of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Now, stand, at this time, still the majority of followers of Jesus were Jewish. And so there was a one particular group, or perhaps multiple groups, that had the idea that to be a true follower of Jesus, you had to become not only to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as your Savior, but you also had to be become a Jew. Which means if you were a male, there were certain alterations that needed to take place in your body. If you were male or female, you had to keep the Jewish law. So you had to have dietary restraints. Paul sees this and says, no, you're wrong. Well, the people back in Galatia, they're going, no, Paul, you're wrong. We're the ones that are true, you're you error you you're you've misunderstood what it's all about to be a follower of jesus and paul writes back and says no i'm right you're wrong now just you may think well what's the big deal in your mind imagine what would happen if paul had lost you know what we would be right now? We would be Christians slash Jews. We would be keeping the the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And instead of worshiping today, we would worship yesterday. You would not be eating pork. There would be dietary constraints that came into play. There would be certain rituals and rites that we would be performing that we do not. And instead of celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, we would be celebrating the Passover or the Shabbat meal every week. It would have had a dramatic impact upon how each and every one of us would live our life. But Paul won. Now, here's what's fascinating, is that for the first two to three hundred years of Christianity, when they had groups that disagreed with each other, you ready for this? This may surprise you. They tolerated each other. They didn't kick each other out. They didn't say, oh, you can't hang out with them anymore because they believe that. Instead, they actually valued the differences. Now, they would have confrontations. They would have disagreements. And they would have winners and losers. But the key was how they treated the loser. For the first two to three hundred years, they said, hey, we're sorry, but you lost. Your idea, meh, not so good. But you're still one of us. And if you continue to hold that view, that's okay. You're going to be in the minority, that's okay. But one time when there was this battle between these different ideas of the winners and losers... The winners decided to treat the losers differently. And when they lost, instead of valuing them, they said, you know what, we got to keep them quiet. So they used a word that had been a very neutral word. It was actually used in the sense of a school of thought, a choice. But it took on a new meaning in the Greek. And that word was heresy. And they started to use it in a derogatory way. And so those who won begin to say that what they taught was orthodoxy. right choice, the right way to believe. And those who disagreed with them, they begin to identify as heretics. And out of fear that those ideas that had lost, that they couldn't have heretics around anymore. And so they took a word and they labeled each other with it. And that label impacted how they treated them. They kicked them out of their communities. They were not welcome in their faith communities anymore. And over time, we know that some of them who were labeled with that title were actually put to death. Because at certain points in the history of Christianity, people said, can't have the losers with us anymore. We have to keep it pure. And those who won, who wanted to keep it pure, they're the ones who got to tell the history of the church. And the way they told the history of the church was what they believed. went back to Jesus. You see, when you win, you get a lot of perks with it. Same thing's happening today. When you have the power, and you have the money, and you have the numbers, you get to decide who gets the label. and you get to tell the story. One example of this, one among many, is the division that's taking place right now within the Methodist Church. Because one group believed that they were right, and the other group believed they were wrong. But the people who thought they were right realized they didn't have the numbers, they didn't have the money, so they chose to separate. It's happening all the time, not only within Christianity, but it's happening in the larger society. you look at the majority of newspapers, what you read about an event, you'll get two different perspectives depending upon who it's coming from. And there continues to be a battle for our minds to decide who is right, who is wrong, who has orthodoxy, who is the heretic. Maybe it's about time we learned a lesson from our Jewish neighbors. Even before the time of Jesus, in the Jewish community, there was more value placed upon orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Let me explain that to you orthodoxy is all about right ideas. Orthopraxy is about right actions. And as long as faith communities and society at large is more interested in having right ideas than how we practice those ideas, we're going to have problems. One writer captured this idea by saying the following, it's difficult to get defensive upon encountering someone with a different belief system, even a belief system that directly contradicts yours when your beliefs are not as central to your identity as your practice and habits. When how you live your life, your conduct becomes more important to you than what you believe. When that happens, We're going to have problems, but if how you live your life is more important than what you believe, it'll make a difference in our world. Now, this idea this week really made me uncomfortable. because I've made my living on ideas. I study ideas. I love to talk about ideas. And I believe That what we believe, our ideas that we hold, impact how we live our lives. And I still hold that view. But my identity, your identity, all of our identities, are they wrapped up in what we believe or how we act and treat one another. When you think of someone who has an opposite position of you on abortion, what does that do to you emotionally? That's a hard one. But what's most important to you? That people believe the same way that you believe? Or how people treat one another? Think about it. What value is it to have, quote, the right ideas, the popular ideas, to be on the winning side? but to treat your neighbor without love. Are we more interested in purity of belief or purity of action? Now, I'm not saying that lightly, because for me, it's a hard one. Because I left a denomination that had, in their estimation, it right. That was ingrained in me. And what this is challenging me to do is to identify myself more with how I treat other people than what I believe. You have to decide which one you prefer. What is of the highest value to you? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Right belief or right conduct.
0: Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org/backslash/online-giving. Beatitudes Radio empowering people to enrich society.